Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. What often drives our clients to distraction is parallel investigations where the FCA is investigating a matter and the SFO is investigating the same person for the same matter. Two different agencies investigate the same thing and you've got scarce resources. That's just madness. Today's guest outlines the changes he believes are necessary to future-proof both the UK's markets watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority, and the country's top prosecution agency, the Serious Fraud Office, and explains why it's vital for the two organisations to begin working together more effectively. He also discusses how the UK's accountability regime for senior city staff could be improved, where the city needs clarity from the government as to its Brexit plans, and plenty more in between. Matthew Noonan spent six years as a case controller at the SFO and seven years at the FCA, where latterly he ran the Regulators Wholesale Enforcement Department, before moving to US Bank Morgan Stanley as Head of Conduct Risk for Europe, the Middle East and Africa in 2014. Since 2020, he has worked as a partner in the dispute resolution practice at law firm Gibson Dunn. Hi Matt, welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you, very nice to be here. Let's start with a brief outline of your role at Gibson Dunn. What types of clients do you advise and what's topping their list of concerns currently? So I advise principally large corporates and particularly focus on financial services firms. We typically work with companies who have a global footprint and are looking for lawyers who can advise on global issues. Top of the list at the moment, there's a very high focus on bribery and corruption. For any firm which operates in a global space, there's a real risk that there are people scattered around the world doing things they shouldn't. Sanctions is also a very hot topic at the moment, obviously because of Russia, but also because the position is changing on such a daily basis. Very hard for firms to keep up with things. And there's also generally a lot of concern on systems controls, whistleblowing, making sure that they really have a good handle on the way their people are behaving. And so we often get called in to have a look at certain issues and work out what's gone wrong, if anything. People want to feel comfortable that they know what's going on. Okay, and your CV includes stints at the Financial Conduct Authority and the Serious Fraud Office. Both organisations have faced questions as to their effectiveness in recent years. The FCA has most recently been subject to scrutiny over its handling of an ever-increasing to-do list and its ability to successfully weed out miscreants at the top of city firms. 
recently, the FCA has faced questions as to its responses to complaints around Crispin Odie, the former hedge fund manager who recently had a series of allegations against him published in the FT and that the FCA announced that it is investigating whether Odie is a fit and proper person to work in financial services. But there have been questions raised as to the FCA's slow response. It's a really interesting dynamic for the regulator where there are allegations of misconduct by people in a firm. You can instantly split into two halves. Allegation of misconduct in the course of their regulated duties. So are they mis-selling? Are they lying to clients? All those kinds of business-related activities, which of course fall squarely within the regulator's remit, and of course are exactly what people expect, politicians expect, firms expect the regulator to be looking at. There's then a section of business which is perhaps falls from reading from the outside, more along the lines of the issues you mentioned about Crispin Odie, where you're looking at perhaps not their interaction with clients. You're looking at how they behave with their colleagues. And there is a big debate now about how much of that is within the regulator's purview. If I stand next to somebody on a tube train and I say something deeply inappropriate to them, probably nothing to do with the regulator. If I stand next to that very same person standing on the trading floor and I say exactly the same thing, is that now within the regulator's authority? Is that within their remit? just because of the location within which I do it. And it is an interesting debate about how much the regulator should get involved with the behaviour of people that happens to take place at work, which is not necessarily about what they are at work to do. So that's your starting point. And I think that scale or that slider is moving. If you went back 15 years, there'd be no debate about those kinds of things. There'd be a general feeling from the regulator that they didn't want that kind of thing to happen. But you wouldn't be likely to see behaviour being sanctioned. It felt like there was a turning point a number of years ago where somebody was prosecuted for failing to buy a train ticket on a repeated occasion. They happened to be within the industry. And the regulator came out and said, if that's how you behave in your personal life, we don't think you're fit and proper. We don't think you're honest enough to work in the industry. And again, a clear connection to regulated business. If you're not honest in that business, How are you going to be honest with your clients? But when you get into purely colleague behavior, sexual harassment, bullying, racism, whatever it might be, it's a harder link through to your regulated activity. It's harder to establish. Does the FCA have the power to fine you for doing that? If I say something inappropriate on a tube to a colleague, can the FCA impose a financial penalty on me for doing so? If I do it on the trading floor, the same behavior, different location, can they impose a financial penalty on me for doing so? So far, what you see is the regulator saying, you are not fit to work in the industry, you're not fit and proper, and so you're out. It is a difficult line to cross, though, which means, in my view, I think you do have to have a regulator which is not necessarily slow, but is cautious about how it approaches these things and has to really think about, is this something for me as the regulator, as the financial conduct authority, or is this something which is for the firm's management to deal with goes to this whole debate around non-financial misconduct, which is a debate that the FCA has encouraged itself because the FCA executive directors have said that they want to pay closer attention to misbehaviour of regulated financial services workers outside of the day job. They see it as reflective of an individual's fitness and propriety to do their role and also it could have such an impact on the culture of them, but it is a very grey area and the FCA comments on that have left regulated individuals within the city scratching their heads as to what that means for them. I completely agree. And I think it's important to remember there's two different lines for the FCA to take action here. One is fitness and propriety, which can lead to a prohibition from being part of the industry. You're not fit to work in this industry, you're out. 
The second one is conduct rule breaches, which are around breaches of the FCA's principles for individuals, their senior management certification regime, and those can lead to financial penalties, as well as sanctions and prohibitions. They are different things, though. And I think there's exactly as you say, there's a blurring of the line between where you can impose a financial penalty and where you can simply say, we don't want you to work here anymore. I think, practically speaking, though, it is very clear that the FCA is focused on this. And therefore, for all those people out there who are not thinking about their behaviour, they should be on notice that you have to be mindful about how you behave. And what you may wish to do in your own personal life, if you are a regulated person, can have a real impact on your career, which, when you say it out loud, makes perfect sense. I'm not sure people have been necessarily making that connection up until the recent years. So could we see this OD investigation as a bit of a test case for the city in terms of what the FCA means when it says we will be paying closer attention to non-financial misconduct? We could do. We could see that and perhaps other cases, given the FCA an opportunity to perhaps clearly articulate what they think is the connection between what you do at work versus colleague behaviour and regulator behaviour. I also think for firms as opposed to individuals, it may shine a light on how a firm responds to allegations against its staff. So we don't forget, of course, where the FCA says that um, Steve or Mary has done a bad thing, they're not fit to be in the industry. The FCA can also then look at Steve or Mary's employer and say, well, you were on notice. What did you as their employer do? It's not just about them, it's also about you as a firm. And that takes us back to systems and controls. And it takes us back to things like whistleblowing. If you as the firm knew that it was happening and did nothing, that raises issues for you as the firm. If you as the firm didn't know it was happening, that also raises issues. And I said at the start about keenness for firms to know what's going on. We have heard over the last literally 30 years, something happens and then people say afterwards, oh yes, well, we all knew there was something strange going on there. Well, if everybody knew, how come you the firm either didn't know or didn't act? And I think that's where we may see these individual investigations escalating into firm inquiries. And so given your experience at the regulator, is there anything that you would like to see change within the organisation? The FCA has a very good track record of doing what it does. It's a very successful prosecutor with a very high track record for successful outcomes. It's long been a global leader in setting standards around the industry, both behavioural and prudential and all other aspects. And it's also very much had a strong voice on the international stage, making real contributions and being seen as a thought leader. It's also rightly had a number of very vocal complaints, highlighting areas which haven't gone as well. And in recent years, as you suggest, there has been an increasing remit. There has been increasing political pressure to expand what it does. The funding model also plays a big part. The FCA is not government funded. It's funded by a levy on industry, which means there must be a temptation for the government to place increasing burden on the we don't have to fund it side of the regulatory sector. And where that comes out now is the FCA headcount is not significantly increasing in recent times. Its workload is significantly increasing, which means that there are issues around staff morale. We've seen FCA strikes for the first time. There's issues around speed, delay. There have been areas where the FCA has made decisions about risk management, which have been criticised later. You chose not to do this. You made decisions too early. You closed your mind to certain things. And I think the changes that are needed are 
to really be able to internally and externally articulate what it is there to do and to have some real pushback in the right way about can it really take on the extra responsibilities it's being asked to and can it maintain its level of quality if it's asked to do that and if the answer is you have no choice but to take on more responsibility and if the answer is we find the level of behavior the level of standards to be no more than the minimum i.e., you can't go down then it has to think about more resources otherwise something has to give and there's a real issue if it doesn't do that it will start to lose its leading voice because it will stop being nimble and responsive and listening to industry and it'll start being well we have to get through the process because we don't have resources to do much else so really to summarize it has to make sufficient change to keep on being successful and that means either really focusing on its key role or looking at how it maintains that standard by potentially more resources and the key to that is at least keeping the resources the quality of the people the level of people it's currently got so in order to do that to retain its staff to attract more staff it would seem likely the fca would need more funding right i, I think that's probably right yes more funding or it needs to reduce what its remit is and it's not looking like it's got any ability to reduce its remit so it needs more funding where is it going to get that from so, so the obvious way is it will have to increase its levy on the industry the other options are the fca still brings in a lot of money through its financial penalties and it could be permitted to retain more of that at the moment it's only permitted to retain certain portions in order to fund its enforcement activity there are risks around keeping the money you bring in because that may incentivize taking in those cases which are most likely to bring in money but the answer and this is the cost of living crisis everywhere if you want to do more if you want more outcomes you have to fund it appropriately for a long time the fca funding models pay models were just slightly above civil service it had more ability to target resources in particular ways it had more ability to recruit staff from civil service peer organizations because it paid slightly better and it had a slightly better reputation. As that gets eroded, it has to say, well, how do we maintain our ability to retain our people? How do we maintain our competitive edge and our nimbleness? And it is hard to do that if you don't have the resources. Do you get a sense that the FCA is aware of the need to make those changes? Do you get a sense that the industry is receptive to those changes as well? That said, the FCA, the pay structures have been reduced in the recent years, uh, leading to a clear feeling amongst the staff that resources and pay and ability to retain and recruit the best people are not there. On the other hand, if you ask industry, industry will say, we want a slick, efficient FCA. Industry will say, we want stability in the people we face off against. We want to know who our supervisory team is. We want enforcement teams to get through things quickly and efficiently. If you also ask industry, do you want to pay for that? Industry is bound to start, at least, by saying no. There perhaps is a realism about, well, if you want something new and shiny, sometimes it costs money. Well, you're not alone in, in suggesting that as a change. So it'd be interesting to see whether the more that that is spoken about, the receptiveness in the industry and the FCA to make those changes grows. Moving on to the SFO, it's recently faced calls from 17,000 city lawyers for urgent and focused reform. In a report published in April, a committee of the City of London Law Society proposed changes, including a budget increase of at least 50%. And it follows what critics have called years of setbacks in the SFO's efforts to prosecute alleged offences. Its current director, Lisa Orsovsky, has been 
criticised for her handling of some of these setbacks. And she steps down as the SFO's top boss in August and will be replaced by former senior police officer Nick Fgrave. What are your views on Nick and what do you think should top his to-do list when it comes to reforming the agency? I don't know him personally. Obviously, it's a really interesting appointment. As far as I can remember, he is the first non-lawyer to be in that position. He comes from the Met Police. He comes from a very senior role. It is true, and it is well known, good lawyers don't necessarily make good managers. And there is a real separation of skills needed between making judgments on legal skills versus managing an organisation of several hundred people, managing a budget of tens of millions of pounds, making sure that the organisation functions as it is intended to function. And lawyers are not necessarily good people managers. They're not necessarily good project managers either. So I think it's a really interesting appointment. It's also interesting at the time when the FCA new director's enforcement is a split role, splitting between a very long-established, well-respected enforcement lawyer, Therese Chambers, and also a recruit from the National Crime Agency, Steve Smart, who, again, brings that criminal prosecuting agency background. At the same time, a police officer is now heading up the serious fraud office. I don't know whether there's a positive, connected rationale behind that, but it does strike me as an interesting dynamic. Top of his to-do list, I would say I'd agree with the report that talked called for more resources. Again, it's a challenging one. The difficulty for the SFO has been, as long as I remember, well, you haven't got the resources. And lots of different models being put in place to talk about blockbuster funding or ability to call for extra money when you really need it. Those don't really work because you can't build the continuity. You can't retain the level of staff and the breadth of staff on a day-to-day basis. If you can only hire them for the specific case and then in theory fire them when the case is finished. So I think the real challenge for him will be to advocate for greater resources so that they can keep and retain the experience. One of the things which have been demonstrated over the last series of setbacks for the SFO is a lack of trust within the organisation. It's been written very clearly in some of the reports about a lack of trust between the rank and file staff doing the job on the ground and senior management. But it's also been... Uh, highlighted in the outcomes that there's perhaps a lack of experience and with a lack of experience comes a lack of confidence. And I can say from my time at the SFO and also my time as a prosecutor at the FCA and even to a certain extent in-house, one of the hardest things to do is to know when to stop. So you can always read another email. You can always interview another person. You can always say, we'll do six months more work on this investigation because there's something else we need to know. The hardest thing to do is to say, we have enough. We don't need to prosecute another 10 inside the dealing charges. Five are enough. We don't need to bring allegations in relation to 16 more corrupt payments. The three we've got are enough. And a lack of confidence is often the driver, in my experience, for people not knowing when to stop. So I think one of the things that Mr. F. Grave will need to sort out is giving his team the confidence to say, we have enough. We can stop. We can move this to trial. We don't need to prosecute another five people. These people are the core of the misconduct, and it's enough to get the message out there. And confidence comes from experience. So you've got to recruit and attract the best people. And it also comes from knowing that if something goes wrong, then you're not going to have fingers pointed internally. You have the trust of your colleagues that you will have done the good job to the best of your ability. So resources starting point but using the resources to build, recruit, retain the best people, and then to build the trust between all the people at all levels to say, we're all in together, we're all setting out to do the right thing. My experience with people at the SFO, from both working there and from the outside, 
a lot of very dedicated, very smart, very committed people really trying their best, perhaps without the resources, without the technology, without the backup, with too much work, with too little praise and congratulations. And that becomes a toxic environment for delivery of outcomes. Okay, and you referenced the appointment of Therese Chambers and Steve Smart as Joint Executive Directors of Enforcement at the FCA, and they replaced Mark Stewart. And and you previously spent seven years at the FCA, latterly as Head of Department for Wholesale Enforcement. Given your experience in that department, what advice would you have to Chambers and Smart in taking on that joint role? So again, clarity to start with. What are you there to do? We used to have this debate with international regulators around the world. Uh, what is the purpose of enforcement? Is it to educate? So you put something out there in the headlines that says to the rest of the world, this is not acceptable behavior, this is where the line is drawn. Is it to deter, to say to people, if you do bad things, there's a real chance you will be caught and, and you will be punished for it, therefore don't do it. Is it to punish? You're a bad person, you have done bad things, there should be consequences for your actions. And the answer I suspect is it's probably all of those three things. But the balance you get between those three things drives the kinds of cases you do, the kinds of speeches you make, the kinds of connectivity between what supervision is doing and what enforcement is doing. And you need to have clarity around why am I doing this about each individual case that you are accepting into enforcement. You've got limited resources. You can't do everything. If you don't have the clarity, then you end up taking the wrong kinds of cases or there are risks, and we may have seen this over the last five or six years of the FCA, that you end up taking on everything. And if you take on everything, when you've got your limited resources, something gives. And you, things grind to a halt, things slip through the cracks, the speed of outcomes noticeably deteriorates. Industry, as a result, starts to complain. My client's been under investigation for 10 years. There's still no outcome. What's going on? I've seen the same thing with complaints about the SFO. And you also get to the stage where the impact of your case is gone. If you publish a notice today about behavior from 10 years ago, unless it's truly egregious, time's moved on. The industry will say, well, we wouldn't do that anymore. And therefore, what's the lesson learned here? So, So my words of wisdom, such as they are for Therese and Steve, would be, what are you here to do? How are you going to achieve it? As you work with your colleagues in the FCA to bring into enforcement the cases that you're going to try and produce outcomes on, I'd also say, again, back to the SFO, clarity around what the FCA's remit is versus the SFO. You can see the government's very high focus on fraud. Hopefully that will translate into resources for the SFO. You also see the fraud very high up the FCA's agenda. And what we have seen from the outside and what often drives our clients to distraction is parallel investigations where the FCA is investigating a matter and the SFO is investigating the same person for the same matter, you may have had to self-report to both organizations. And if you end up wasting resources as a prosecutor because two different agencies are investigating the same thing, and you've got scarce resources, that's just madness. Let alone the impact it has on the client who's providing information to two different bodies, who doesn't know which way it's going to go, who can't work out how to resolve this because there's two competing actors. So clarity around the FCA's remit, what is it there to do? Clarity around its engagement with other organizations. Where do you divide the turf between the two of you? Clarity around international relationships. Where does the FCA stop and the SEC start or the CFTC? Where does the SFO stop and the DOJ start? If everybody can make sure their resources are focused on the things which need them to be doing it, 
suddenly you free up resources, suddenly you have better relationships with other organizations, and suddenly clients, targets, suspects may get to see a much slicker, smoother outcome. Mm-hmm. And issues around interaction between the FCA and SFO during an investigation really came to a head um, during the investigation into Tom Hayes's involvement in the London interbank offered rates rigging scandal. And that's something that has been much discussed since then. That case really brought it to a head. Would you agree? Definitely. And, and I go broader than the SFO and the FCA because, of course, LIBOR led to outcomes for the CFTC, I think DOJ, I think there were Japanese JFSA outcomes. There may have been others around the world. And all focused, again, on the same behavior by the same one, two, five, how many individuals, all leading to financial penalties. The coordination exercise was staggering. You would hope that there would be lessons learned. You would hope that, particularly with the change of leadership in the SFO and the enforcement in the FCA, it's a clean slate. There's no political territory. There's no history. You would hope that they could have a straightforward conversation which says, what are we here to do? What are you here to do? And also, how can you help? One of the nicest things I found moving from the SFO to the FCA was at the FCA, you are surrounded by experts. You have got industry participants. You've got ex-traders. You've got people who have been watching the markets for 20 years who can talk you through what you would expect to see. You can talk you through why things happen. You've also got the people who literally wrote the handbook. So those experts are within the FCA helping guide outcomes for enforcement. If there can be straightforward cooperation, those experts can be on hand to support other organizations. If there's the goodwill and the recognition that this should be a two-way street, we should be able to draw on you and we can help you and you can help us. The FCA doesn't have, even to date, the wealth of experience of prosecuting serious complex matters that the SFO does. The FCA has been doing it for 15 years. The SFO has been doing it for 30 years. There is wealth of experience to share there. You would hope that the new heads can open the dialogue about free and frank assistance to each other. Okay. This focus on UK regulators' effectiveness follows policymakers' efforts to rethink UK financial regulation in the wake of Brexit. In that context, are there any opportunities or challenges you think the government has overlooked? There is an interesting question for the government in terms of alignment or divergence. So Brexit offers the opportunity to diverge from the rest of the EU, but there are benefits to alignment. It's simpler for firms to have one set of rules to operate against. It's cheaper for firms, which would hopefully mean cheaper for customers, who only have to operate against one rule book. You get customers who may move across different countries. It's better for them to have a single experience to be able to understand what they're going to get if they buy an investment product in the UK will be the same as they would get in Spain or France or possibly the US or Japan. If you get equivalents, you also get a bigger market for customers, a bigger market for firms, and so real benefits for alignment. On the other hand, there are real benefits to divergence. You get the ability to take the path you think is right. I, I used to be part of one of the European Securities Markets Authority committees, and there was a lot of discussions often about different cultural viewpoints on what the important priorities were. If you have the ability to diverge, you can simply say, well, I believe my point of view is best, and I'm going to go that way. You have the ability to be nimble, to be responsive, to be agile and make quick decisions. Um, And you also have the ability to make yourself more attractive by reducing the rule book, by lowering taxes, by providing incentives. So too early to say missed opportunities, but it's not clear to me yet 
whether the government is aiming for divergence, they're talking about things like crypto regulation, or whether they're aiming for more alignment. They recently had the MOU between the UK and EU about discussions between regulators. So effectively, a, an agreement between the UK government and EU, which sets out how, when, and within which parameters information will be shared between the UK regulators and the European regulators, opening the door for the FCA and PRA to have more regular interaction with European regulators. It doesn't commit them to doing any more than that, but at least it opens the door for dialogue. So lots of statements about post-Brexit opportunities, not quite clear what those are going to translate into in reality. And I wonder how much the government has really been able to turn its mind to these things. Surely the ship has sailed, so to speak, in terms of divergence. It has been so many years now since Brexit was voted for and a number of years since it actually came into fruition. And in, during that period of time, the UK has been rethinking its financial rulebook at the same time as the EU authorities have been rethinking their post-crisis rulebook. So different decisions have been made across a number of different rule sets now. So there is that ongoing slow divergence, even if it might not be as dramatic as perhaps envisaged by some politicians, there is a slow divergence and that will surely continue. Absolutely, that's right. But I think your point is key. It is a slow divergence. There's a vast amount of the rules which haven't particularly changed and where they have changed, I don't think the changes are necessarily huge. I also think that in the next five years, the rulebook will be tested and it may be that we see reconvergence at that stage. So, for example, a lot of focus on standards around sustainability and the UK has taken a slightly different approach to the EU. Is it really that different in practice? Well, time will tell about the implementation and it may be that the end product looks a lot like the EU one. Similarly, the EU has published its rules around crypto assets. The UK has made a lot of speeches about crypto assets. The rule implementation isn't necessarily complete and isn't particularly clear. We also see Singapore and Hong Kong putting out statements around crypto assets. We are yet to see quite so clearly what the US is doing. And again, once all parties have put their cards on the table, we may see reconvergence. We may see an intention to say, well, actually, the right answer is the right answer. And if we all come at it from a different position, but arrive at the same place, you may end up with the same answer. Okay. And in the context of the MOU that you referenced and the divergence point as well, there was initially interest in that MOU for financial services being agreed quite quickly following the UK's split from the EU. And the hope was that a quick agreement on that would then open the door to some equivalence agreements being put in place. And equivalence agreements are a construct within EU rules that enable non-EU firms to have greater access to EU businesses because the EU authorities have decided that their rules are equivalent to those in place within the bloc. What would you say the likelihood of that is now that the MOU has come into place so far down the line? And what can the government do on the divergence point? Are you saying that you would like greater clarity from the government as to what their plans are there in order to ensure that the city is best placed to take advantage of any opportunities arising from Brexit? Yes, exactly. That's better than I could possibly put it. Clarity is always the key. One of the things which makes the UK an attractive place to do business, particularly with financial services, but generally, is clarity. Clarity leads to predictability. If I operate in this jurisdiction, I have a fairly good idea what's going to happen next. Because the regulators are predictable, because we have rule of law, because we have legally enforceable actions. So all of these are predicated upon clarity. Do we know what the goals are? Do we know what's going to come next? If 
there's constant chopping and changing. It makes it very difficult to predict, which means investment is difficult, which means people don't know where to operate in this jurisdiction or open an office here or transfer their staff here because they don't know what's happening next. In terms of the question about the MOU, it may be pure coincidence, but with the bank's instability earlier this year, is it a coincidence the MOU was signed relatively shortly afterwards? Did that really reinforce the need for regulators around the world to really say it is important we are communicating fully and freely so that we can respond rapidly when something happens? There were real issues which could have had financial crisis type ripple effects, and you need a global response to shore up confidence. So it's important the MOU is in place now, and I think the recent crisis quickly dealt with does emphasize the need for good communication across different regulatory spheres, different international spheres. Now, in terms of is it too late? I don't think it's ever too late. You can see once things have been thought through, people realize that actually what we had in place before may be a sensible way for this instance, for this particular sphere to go back to being coordinated. And the last word I'll say on this is where the rules are right, there's no point doing something different. The only reason to do something different is if you think the rules are wrong. If the UK thinks the rules on sharing of inside information are right in the EU, then why would it have different rules in the UK? So although the MOU has been slow to be negotiated, the fact that it has been done now is a positive sign and it opens the door to at least have sensible conversations about if the rules are right, let's all do the same thing. Okay, well, let's hope that the various policymakers are listening to your advice. Your career also includes six years as a mere head of conduct risk at Morgan Stanley. And UK banks arguably took the lead in tackling conduct risk almost a decade ago now, when the FCA first took steps to ensure senior bosses at city firms took accountability for bad behaviour under their watch via the introduction of its senior managers and certification regime. What does good look like in, in this context now? And would you say that the city's focus on conduct risk has been a success? Yes, I think the senior managers certification regime has been a huge success, despite the lack of enforcement. There's been, I think, almost nothing, maybe one case. And the reason I think it's a success is it's very clear to me that what the regime has done is really highlighting that bad behaviour on your watch is your responsibility. And if you can't demonstrate you tackled it appropriately, then you are in trouble. And I think that led to some really frank conversations in the industry, which I've seen from both sides of the table, around, do I really know the extent of what my responsibilities are? And how do I know what Steve and Mary down on the trading floor are doing? And if the answer is, I don't really know, how do I check? And if I believe it's working, how do I know? How do I test? It's not perfect. There's still the issues today. Behaviour and standards and doing the right thing have gone from a nice to have to being something that really mattered and to something that if you don't meet those standards, it's not a frown and come on, pull your socks up. It's you can get fired. In terms of what does good look like now, I think it does look like proper behaviour and behaviour which meets what you would describe to your children as good behaviour. And it is as simple as that. It is interesting. The standards in the financial services industry, I think, are higher than in a lot of other walks of life now. The practices that you might see pressure selling tactics around double glazing windows or second hand cars just not allowed to do in the industry and i do think it's gone over into non-financial conduct risk because you do get people saying 
the way you shouted at that meeting, that's inappropriate. The things you said at the Christmas party, that's inappropriate. And so I think it has genuinely improved standards. Whether that will ever stop all bad things happening, never will. Of course it won't. But it does make them hopefully the exception. Our conversation comes as, as the UK is actually reviewing the SMCR. The review into the SMCR kicked off earlier this year. Are there any specific changes to the rule set that you would like to see? There is nothing that I would immediately say, well, that clearly hasn't worked. It is interesting how little enforcement there has been in this area. And there must be there for a question of why is that? We always knew that cases against individuals take far longer than they do against firms. Firms are much more inclined to say it's a cost of doing business. It matters for individuals who may be personally responsible, personally fined, reputational hits. But there's been very, very few in the 10 years. So there's got to be a question asked about why is that? There's also got to be a question asked about the trickle-down effect. So a lot of the focus in the early stages has been on the big organisations. It's not clear to me how much has trickled down to the smaller firms. They've got their regime much later than other places. They don't get the same supervisory oversight. So I would be asking a question about whether it is really working at all levels or whether there need to be tweaks to the system. It'd be interesting to see what comes out of that review. And generally, and lastly, what's one upcoming or current challenge that you think not enough people are paying attention to? Well, it's interesting to say this, given how much the FCA have been talking about, but the consumer duty. The FCA keeps saying not enough people are focusing on the consumer duty. It is an obligation on regulated firms, principally retail firms, people dealing with consumers, but also people who manufacture products which are sold to consumers, to take proactive steps to ensure good outcomes for the consumer. One point, in my view, about consumer duty, it's a small legal change. It's a massive psychological change. You've gone from saying to your clients, here are my products, here are the risk warnings, choose what you want, don't say I didn't warn you, through to an obligation to be proactive, to check, to go back to them and ask them, is it working for you? The difference between giving somebody a takeaway menu and saying, pick what you want, here's the calorie count, versus being a sommelier who goes along and says, how did you find that last dish? Have you got any allergies? What did you think about this? I can suggest the wine that goes with it. It's a very different experience. And I don't think people necessarily understood that that's the change which is being made. Is there anything the FCA could be doing to encourage those that are in line to be subject to the new consumer duty to pay more attention to the requirements that will bring in? I'm not sure they can do more. We're back to the purpose of enforcement. I suspect we will see some enforcement cases within the first six months, which are specifically targeted at educating the market about what that means in reality and hitting the people who haven't taken the reasonable steps to proactively engage and saying to the rest of the market, uh, heads up, we're out there looking at this. And secondly, this is what we expect. Read the final notice so you can understand it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Absolute pleasure. Very happy to do so. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.